and welcome to Engage with Equal Forum. I am one of your hosts, Glenn McKay, a former executive director and current board member of Eagle Forum, and I'm joined by my friend, Kirsten Hasler, Eagle Forum's executive director. Hi, everyone. It's great to be on with you, Glenn, and thanks for joining us, listeners. Today's episode is going to be a bit different than normal. If you are like us, the nation's response to the coronavirus and its economic impacts have been confusing to understand. So today, in a three-part series, you will hear from those who have been on the front lines about what has been going on in Washington, D.C., how it's affecting the economy, and what you can do to help jumpstart it in your state. We are honored today to be joined by Congressman Jody Heiss, who has represented Georgia's 10th Congressional District since 2015. Congressman Heiss is a husband, father, and grandfather, and served as a pastor for nearly 25 years before running for Congress. He was actively involved in politics even before running for Congress, taking on battles for religious freedom, which led to hosting a weekly radio show where he focused on constitutional, moral, and religious liberty issues. He is now the host of the weekly Freedom Caucus podcast, which is a great resource if you want to know what's really going on in Congress. Congressman, you've been such a great friend of Eagle Forum for many years, and we're so grateful that you would take the time to join us today. Well, listen, it's an honor to be with you all. I appreciate you having me on and appreciate all that you're doing. Well, we know the inner workings of Congress make it a hard place to be. When you're in session, it's nonstop work, and when you're home, it's nonstop events and meetings. For most, it's certainly a sacrifice. What inspired you, Congressman, to first run for Congress? To be honest with you, this was never on my radar. I never anticipated running for Congress or being in an elected office myself. I was a pastor, a happy uh, as a pastor for, for many years. And really the Lord just kind of changed the direction of our life. We had the ACLU attack our county over a posted copy of the Ten Commandments in the courthouse. And just so happened our church put those commandments in the courthouse. So that lawsuit literally just marched in the doors of our church. And that was the beginning of me getting involved. Uh, that case took on national attention. Alan Keyes came and got involved with us and uh, Tony Perkins and just a host of people. And it took on a national focus and I kind of became the face of it. And in fact, out of that, the radio program evolved. Station contacted me asking me if I'd give updates and I agreed. One thing led to another and then we ended up on some 400 stations every day dealing with uh, issues that are happening in our, our country from a Christian worldview perspective. So that's kind of how it, it all got started. And then we had a second battle that took on national focus as well. And that is when ADF, Alliance Defending Freedom, contacted me and asked if I'd be willing to challenge the IRS and their uh, attempts to censor what can and cannot be said in churches, the Johnson Amendment, as you may be aware of. And so I ended up being one of 33 pastors who challenged the IRS with that, and I kind of became the face of that battle as well. And uh, so it was those things that just kind of pushed me out more into a public perspective, and I became personally aware of what's happening to our religious liberties, uh, what's happening in our country as a whole. And, uh, and then my representative decided to uh, step down, and it became an open seat. And we had people just saying, listen, would you consider running? And so my wife and I prayed about it, and one thing led to another, and I actually ran twice. I lost the first time, and second time we won, and uh, so now we're uh, coming to the conclusion of our third time, uh, third term in Congress, but that's kind of how it all started, and it just really was birthed out of God 
redefining uh, the direction of ministry for us at this point in our lives. You're certainly um, giving up a lot to be there, and so we're grateful for that. You're a founding member of the House Freedom Caucus, and some background for our listeners, most members of Congress join organizations within the Congress that assert common goals. So the largest caucuses are obviously the Republican and Democrat caucuses, but there are many others. There's a caucus for progressive Democrats, a caucus for Hispanics and African Americans. There's one for those who want Medicare for all, uh, one for moderate Republicans, and one for more conservative Republicans. And then in 2015, the House Freedom Caucus was formed. Why was there a need for a Freedom Caucus? Well, I mean, basically the Freedom Caucus, I can sum it up just by saying that the Freedom Caucus really exists to be a voice for millions of Americans who believe they've lost their voice in Washington. And it's made up of about uh, 35 or 40 individuals who uh, I would trust my life with any, any one of them. They are in Congress for the right reason. They're not there to be reelected. They're not there to promote themselves or any specific agenda other than the agenda of representing the people and standing on the conservative Judeo-Christian values upon which our nation was established. And uh, so it's a voice for millions of Americans who have lost their voice in Washington. And uh, the members of the Freedom Caucus are, uh, we take a lot of hits. Uh, we we are not uh, greatly thought of by many people in Washington, uh, but we are highly respected by a large number of Americans who are wanting somebody who will take a stand and not cave to the political pressure. I think that's an interesting point to make. You know, most of our listeners are busy at home, raising families, putting food on the table, and they might look at Congress and say, well, you're all Republicans. Don't you all get along? Can you give us a little insight into uh, what that might or might not look like sometimes when you're taking on specific issues? Yeah, you know, I mean, in, in the first place, is it's important for people to understand that people in Washington, at least supposed to be, are they representing their districts, the people who elected them? But unfortunately, when you get to Washington, you've all heard of the Washington bubble. Uh, it's a different world in Washington, and there's a lot of potential for power. There's a, a potential for uh, just a, a host of things like that. And so a lot of people end up going to Washington and they cave to the political pressure. And uh, that pressure starts with things like, uh, if you wanna be an influential member of Congress, then uh, you need to become a chairman of this committee or you need to be a part of that committee or this, that, and the other. And so oftentimes you are uh, put in a scenario to compromise your beliefs in order to get placed on a committee or compromise your convictions in order to get PAC money or to have a, a piece of legislation that's very important to you, to, to have a vote on that bill. Uh, many times there will be a choice given to you to, if you want this bill to come to the floor, then we need you to do this. And so uh, there's just a lot of opportunities like that, that people tend to uh, cower under and cave, if you will. I don't uh, like throwing anyone under the bus, but but that is the reality of, of the type of environment that Washington is made up. Unfortunately, it's made up of a lot of compromise, mm -hmm. and 
Um, and people do that in order to get on committees or get funding or whatever it is that's important to them. So how have you not put yourself in that circumstance and stayed humble and grounded in what you believe? Well, the number one thing unquestionably to me is my Christian values. Number one thing I do every morning is have my time in the word and try to get my heart prepared for the day. And, uh, and we do that, but you know, deep down, I'm, I'm not there to be reelected. If I'm not reelected, then I will bow my head and, and gratitude to the people of the 10th district of Georgia for giving me the opportunity to serve for the length of time that they've entrusted it to me. And then I'll go on about my life or whatever chapter God has next. Uh, and that really is just the attitude I have. And I, and I've tried to uh, keep that on the forefront of my life that it's not about reelect. It's about standing on what I said I was going to stand for once I got here. And Fortunately, there's a lot of encouragement from other individuals, particularly those who are members of the Freedom Caucus. Mm -hmm. They're with the same kind of heart. And, it, and that helps, having a camaraderie and having a group of people who likewise are, are there to make a stand and not to uh, have a career. What has it been like working with a Democrat leader in the House, a Republican leader in the Senate, and a very independent Republican president? Yeah, you know, these are interesting days. I can tell you it's not a whole lot of fun being in the minority in the House. Uh, we don't have any say-so on what bills come to the floor. We don't have any say-so what type of hearings are going to be done in various committee meetings. Uh, I mean, really, we don't, we don't have any say on anything in the, mm -hmm. as the minority. And, of course, we all know that Speaker Pelosi and company are very aggressive in pushing their liberal agenda uh, uh, across America. And so we find our role in the House largely, largely trying to put the brakes on what the liberal Democrats are trying to do and uh, to use every parliamentary procedure at hand to try to slow it down or change it and try to message to America what's going on and hopefully have uh, uh, people across the country uh, let their voices be heard. And, and we've been somewhat successful with that. Thankfully, we have the Senate uh, that uh, has been able to put a stop, literally, on a lot of horrible legislation that passed the House because of the majority of the House. Uh, and that dies in the Senate. That's been a tremendous blessing. And uh, likewise, to have the occupant in the White House that we have right now has just been a tremendous blessing for America. And it, it's uh, amazing that we, you know, President Trump, is not beholden to anyone. He does not need this job. Right. And so he, he's there doing what he believes is the right thing. And, uh, you know, he's been a major thorn in the side of liberals and the liberal press as well. And yeah. I'm very grateful for that. Yeah. Well, I can't imagine what a balancing act this has been for y'all. But you've done an excellent job um, with the Freedom Caucus podcast. And the last several episodes have been about COVID-19. Uh, we certainly encourage all of our listeners to go there for more details. But for those who have had trouble weeding through all the noise of the media, can you just give us a brief overview of how Congress has responded to this health crisis? Yeah, you know, it's been, it's been kind of interesting. There's definitely been uh, an attempt to, of, of Congress, an enormous attempt to the tune pushing nearly $3 trillion now uh, to address the problem. This is a scenario where government asks people to uh, shelter at home, ask businesses to stop 
and to distance themselves away from one another to try to slow the spread of the coronavirus. Uh, and so Congress has stepped up to try to fill in the gaps where businesses have lost money, where individual livelihoods have suffered. Uh, and it's been, um, the effort has been pretty, uh, it's been phenomenal. It's been substantial. It's been fast. Uh, I don't think this type of money has ever been spent so rapidly. But therein lies part of the problem. At the same time, we are watching a massive expansion of government. We're watching a massive expansion of our federal debt. We're watching a massive loss of our civil liberties going on. And the question begins to emerge, what is America going to look like on the other side of this pandemic? And those are the type of issues that raise a, a great cause of alarm to me personally. And those are issues that we are going to have to address. Uh, you know, uh, freedom is is only as, as close as it is for those who are defending it in order to pass it on to the next generation. And some of the things taking place right now are alarming and very concerning. And I think, unfortunately, it's very difficult to get the genie back in the bottle once you let the genie out. And uh, government's expansion in this and loss of liberties is uh, very alarming right now. And I, that's a top priority for me personally, as we're going through all this. Well, I certainly appreciate how you are taking that seriously and not just thinking of the short term, but also the long term for your constituents and the rest of the Americans. Can you tell us a little bit about the process you've been subjected to for voting on the stimulus bills and what can we expect moving forward? You know, the process uh, for in terms of voting for this is typical of any big bill. I mean, there, it comes with a significant amount of pressure uh, from just the Washington inside. But this particular scenario has further had a lot of pressure just from constituents and people across America whose lives have been negatively impacted by being forced to stay at home, shut the doors of businesses, and that type of thing. So the real pressure for me personally comes in balancing between trying to help those who government has told to stay at home or close the doors of your business, while at the same time uh, not bankrupting our country, and at the same time not uh, trashing our liberties and our constitutional rights. So it's been um, a, a very difficult field to navigate through, to be very honest, uh, and uh, not an easy one to go through. You feel like any decision you make, ultimately, there's good and bad with either vote on a lot of these. You vote for it, whether you're helping people, but at the same time, you're uh, in process of potentially bankrupting our country and, and, and ignoring constitutional liberties. But you vote against it, well, then you're voting against help and aid to people and businesses who need it. So th these have been very, very difficult votes. Um, uh, but that's the, the basic climate uh, of, the, of the pressure, both internally and from constituents at home. On a previous episode of the Freedom Caucus podcast, you and Congressman Mark, Mark Green were discussing how COVID affects millennials. And at this point, we've seen virtually no deaths among those healthy under 40 from the virus. 
However, the shutdown has had a huge economic and social impact on that age group, as you were alluding to. So you discussed then whether or not the shutdown we've seen was an overreaction. And I'm just wondering, what do you think about that question now? Have we overreacted? And how do we move forward? Yeah, I think, uh, good question. I think we have overreacted. You look at the models, we were first told that there would be over 2 million Americans die from 2 million. Uh, that's an enormous amount of people, but we were told by the models <clears throat> that over 2 million Americans would die. Excuse me, then those models changed to a little over 1 million, 1.3 million, then it went to a quarter million, then it went to 100,000, and now it's around 60,000. Well, there's an enormous difference between 2 million and 60,000, uh, and yet, I think the president did all he could do when he was told, if we don't shut down, two million Americans will die. Well, what do you do? I mean, you've got to make that right. tough kind of decision. But now we're a couple of months into this and we realize the models were wrong. Mm -hmm. And so did we overreact? Yes, we overreacted. But did we overreact just for the fun of it? No, we, we overreacted because in my opinion, we were given faulty information to begin with. Uh, but even then, we've known from the beginning that the most vulnerable with COVID-19 are the elderly and <clears throat> the elderly and those with compromised immune uh, systems. And so, you know, those are the ones we need to uh, put on the uh, priority list of protecting. Everyone else is pretty well safe in this. And so, yes, I believe we overreacted. Um, we should have done all we could to protect the most vulnerable and uh, let others continue their work, continue their lives while being sensible uh, and some degree of social distancing or whatever may be involved with that, but go about your normal lives as uh, cautiously and safely as you can. But to shut down yeah, I think that was a, so, a so step I think, too far. Right. So the question now is, where do we go from here? You know, here in Texas, where I am, the governor has said most businesses can open on May 1st. Um, and they've put some precautions in place. But how, how, what, how should there be a response from Congress? Should governors be following suit? Where do we go from here? Yeah, I think we've, we've got to get government out of uh, running every decision of our lives. Uh, that's concerning to me. And I appreciate the fact that the president has allowed governors to make decisions based on the best interest of their states. Georgia, where I li live, likewise, uh, the governor is open, opening up. We are in process and so far so good with that. But you have other states like New York. I mean, that's the epicenter of this problem in our country. And so obviously New York, particularly the city, uh, needs to take extra precautions because they've got a different scenario taking place than do other parts of the country. So it's the proper approach to let governors and individual states make these decisions on their own. But the priority where we've got to go from here, we have got to open up the economy. There is no amount of money in Washington, D.C. that can fix this problem, that can take care of everybody's need, that that we're talking trillions upon trillions and trillions of dollars to do that. So what we've got to do is open up the economy. We can do that for two reasons. Number one, as we just mentioned, we know those who are most vulnerable. So we, 
we can protect the most vulnerable. Everyone else can go about their business. Uh, but we can also do it because we have the capacity and the common sense within our business community to be safe for those who do go to work and to provide common sense precautions for them as they work. And so I think that's the, the natural approach, the common sense approach, and the quicker we get there, the better. Mm -hmm. Well, that certainly sounds great to me. <laughs> Um, we have a few questions from our listeners for you. A listener in Alabama asks, what makes this economic crisis different from the Great Depression or the Great Recession? Well, great question. Uh, the bottom line is um, this one, the government brought on itself right? in the sense that the government is the one who asked people to close their businesses and stay at home. The Great Depression was a, an entirely different circumstance that was based on an economic depression. Uh, but this one came to us in the midst of an economic boom. I mean, we were at the strongest economy in the history of our country, uh, lowest unemployment and all that sort of stuff. And then a pandemic comes along and we have a government asking people to stay at home. So that's the biggest difference. And that is where we're going to be able to crawl out of this more rapidly because as businesses are free to go back to work, uh, we can get back more rapidly to having a strong economy yet again. Well, one of our listeners from New Jersey asks, we're hearing about a coming shortage of meat and dairy products because of the closing of slaughterhouses and disruptions in the global market. Are there plans to protect dairy and meat producers, both small and large? Yes. In fact, just today I saw uh, something. I did not read the article as a, as a whole, uh, but, but there's um, uh, plans, absolutely. And listen, that is a great point. We uh, have had our health safety workers shut down processing plants, for example, uh, but the rippling effect of that decision is that now those raising the livestock or those uh, producing the milk or whatever product it may be have nowhere to get rid of their uh, livestock or their, their produce, whatever it may be. And so as a result, they've got to destroy it. Uh, I was just yesterday, I had lengthy conversations with uh, leaders, uh, national leaders in our ag community discussing this very thing. Yesterday, we had a conversation with a dairy uh, in our own district. Uh, when schools shut down, people don't think about this, but when the schools shut down, that's the number one, 50% of the dairy market goes to schools. Well, yeah. when the schools shut down, instantly, they lost 50% of the business. Well, you still have to milk the cows. You have to milk the cows twice a day, whether you're getting rid of the milk or not. So now you have these dairies that are producing the milk, but they've got nowhere to sell it. Restaurants are closed, schools are closed, so they're having to dump the milk out. Uh, and so it's an enormous problem, but yes, there, there is some, some uh, strong efforts being made uh, by uh, Sonny Perdue and the, uh, the ag uh, community to to help those farmers and those who have been majorly impacted as a result of these processing plants uh, being forced to shut down. That's certainly reassuring. We have one more question from you from a listener in Texas. Where is all the money coming from for the stimulus checks and bailouts? This is my favorite question. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> my favorite question too. And uh, you know, unfortunately, the answer is going to be from us. Yeah. Uh, you know, our government does not make money. Our uh, government takes money. And who do they take it from? 
they take it from us. And so when we spend like we have now, right at $3 trillion, where are they going to get that money from? Well, at the end of the day, they're gonna get it from the American citizens. And that's what's so alarming to me. And we were 23 trillion in debt coming into this pandemic. And now we've spent an additional 3 trillion with more bills that were being told or forthcoming. Uh, the the um, feds have spent an additional 4 trillion. Uh, so, you know, it, it's becoming a very frightful scenario economically. We have got to get our financial house in order in this country I believe we are on the verge of putting enormous pressure on our children and even our grandchildren's generation by the enormous amount of spending that have taken place in just the last few weeks. Yeah, whenever I write about the U.S. debt, I always have to check the usdebtclock.org, and it's just terrifying to oh, see. Oh, it's terrifying. <laughs> mm -hmm. So to wrap up, let's end on a, a higher note. What advice or encouragement would you give to our listeners as we move forward from this time? You know, I, uh, as a Christian, uh, never, ever lose hope. Uh, you know, I think one of the things that God is teaching America and the world for that matter is that nations rise and nations fall within days if he wants it to be. Here we went from one of the strongest economies, probably the strongest economy, not only in the world, but in our nation's history. Who would imagine that less than two weeks later, or, I mean, two, two months later, we are uh, seeing 25 million or whatever in unemployment lines and all this kind of stuff. It happened so rapidly, so unexpectedly. Uh, but at the same time, God is able to restore the years that the locusts have eaten, so to speak. And I'm just prayerful that at this time in our nation's history, people will be crying out to him. People will be praying that believers will be loving their neighbors, ministering to their neighbors and friends and um, loved ones, family members across the board. I have every confidence in the world that we're going to, to see uh, these days behind us, and we're going to see brighter days. But my hope in all of this is that when we come to the other side, we will be much more humble and broken and recognizing that we're not as big as we thought we were. We're not as untouchable as we thought we were, that every day uh, we need the Lord and we need God in America now more than ever before. And so I just encourage people to keep the hope up, keep their faith up, God is still God, and we've got some great days ahead of us, and now people are very, very much open and broken to the point of, of being able to receive uh, the, the truth yes. of, the, of the gospel and, and the, the truth of um, who we are as people in this planet. And so these, these, I think we've got, uh, we've got great leadership in this country. We've got great people working towards vaccines. For this, we got great people leading our country, and uh, we just need to get back to work, and we're gonna we're gonna be fine. We agree, and thank you so much, Congressman, for your time, your insight, and understanding is invaluable. And we will just continue to pray for you. And thank you, listeners, for listening to this episode of Engage with Eagle Forum. Please be sure to subscribe so that you are able to listen to the continuation of our series on the economic impacts of the coronavirus. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. From your house, to the State House, to the White House, this is Engage with Eagle Forum.